that jarring cacophony can only mean one thing. The power of three is back. I'm Kenny Smith, and last week we featured the sixth Doctor in one of his latest Big Finish audios. And we're sticking with that incarnation this week, as we're back with the podcast that loves to celebrate Doctor Who in all its forms, whether on TV, audio, books, animations, or anything else. We like to discuss, dissect, discourse and disagree as we look through the universes of Doctor Who. And this week, we're previewing the next Blu-ray release in Doctor Who, the collection. We've brought together four interviews covering season 22, Colin Baker's first full season in the TARDIS. And we speak to one of the season's big name guest stars, the man who's restored the pictures, the gent who's compiled the thousands of pages of production notes available as PDFs, and finally, Meet the fella who's made a new documentary on Revelation of the Daleks. These interviews were actually recorded months ago, indeed not long after the set was announced. So we now finally have a release date of the 20th of June, the day after my birthday for those of you who are interested and want to send me cash or presents. But no, I'm not telling you the name of my first pet or my mum's maiden name because I don't want you hacking my bank account. We're going to kick off today with a quick chat with Martin Jarvis who guest starred in Vengeance and Varos as the governor. Back in April, I spoke to Martin and his wife Rosalind Ayres for my old day job at Scottish Field, before they came up to the Boswell Book Festival in Ayrshire. Of course, it would have been remiss of me not to ask him about his memories of his appearance with Colin Baker. Hello, I'm Rosalind Ayres. And I'm Martin Jarvis. First Doctor Who was William Hartnell, going back that far, but then the third Doctor was Colin Baker, who's an old uh, chum of ours, and... Um, that was Vengeance on Varos. Vengeance on Var- Varos, and really, again, going back to Shakespeare, the governor, which was my role, was really a sort of version of Brutus in Julius Caesar, in a sense of possibly a, a, a weak man, but trying to do good, uh, um, written by um, Philip Martin. Um, remarkable writer who, who did this wonderful slightly Shakespearean view of a planet and um, I think it was actually quite controversial wasn't it because I think yeah. questions were asked in the house yeah was it too violent well I mean there was a near hanging in it uh, and, and wonderful performance by Nabil Shaban playing Sil yeah. when I came to do the audio book which I did reasonably recently uh, it was quite hard for me to I could play do the governor and I could do my version of Colin as um, Doctor Who in terms of doing all the parts in a um, an audio book but coming um, to do Nabil Shaban's voice you know Doctor I got that you know welcome to my planet Doctor um, and, and I said to him when we were on the set, I said, how do you, it's really what you do when you say doctor. And he said, well, actually, Martin, what I'm really saying is duck turd. <laughs> duck turd. <laughs> I love it. These little secrets. <laughs> but it was oh, perfectly God. good in the character of this, you talked earlier about evil monsters and um, this character was desperately evil and therefore the most popular character in that film. <laughs> Amazing. You know, thank you for sharing those reminiscences. It's, 
It's always good to know that guest stars enjoyed their time in Doctor Who, so it's lovely to know Martin had a great time doing it. So, let's move on now and check in with a good friend of the podcast, Peter Crocker. For those of you who don't know, Peter is the expert who goes through those classic episodes of Doctor Who and presents them as best as they can be, as a feast for our eyes as he repairs and restores them for Blu-ray release. Peter this week also tells us about his work in this set and reveals more details about the fabled JNT archive that fandom has speculated about for years. I'm Peter Crocker, nice to speak to you, and I do the restoration of the pictures on the Blu-rays. Welcome back to The Power of Three, Peter. It's always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. This is uh, quite an exciting one, season 22, as it's one of those seasons that there's just such a difference in the stories and it just it's so many different locations and things. But from your point of view, how much original material did you have to work with in terms of restoration? Were there many original film inserts or anything like that that you could work with? There was virtually nothing on this series. There's a there's a, a, a tiny bit of film existing for Revelation of the Daleks, which are the model shots. And there are also some, uh, frustratingly, there, there are some trims existing of the some of the location materials. So that's more useful for bit, sort of behind the scenes documentaries than anything else. Little glimpses that weren't in the episodes, but of course the bits that were used in the episodes were cut out. So by definition, aren't in the trims. So unfortunately, uh, even though there was a lot of film in that season, especially Mark of the Rani, really it's only what's in the, what we've got on the transfers in the actual episodes. So I just had to try and work whatever magic in, in inverted commas uh, I can onto the um, uh, the transmission videotapes uh, to try and buff them up and make them look presentable on everyone's sort of 75 inch tellies. Yeah. So what are you actually working from when you started this restoration? I'd assume that it's the 625 masters have been copied and yes. into, into a strong format um, that you'd be able to sort of start with rather than have to go to the, the tapes and transfer them yet again. No, that's right. That's right. I, I can't, I can only think of one episode in the entire colour run where there might be a case for going back at this stage to the two-inch tape which is um, and, and, and we might not even then because I think I think the expense and difficulty involved plus the fact that at the end of all that we might not get anything better sort of mitigates against that but there's an episode of The Invisible Enemy I think it might be episode it's either episode two or three can't remember which but one of them had a a tape replay clogging of one of one of the heads. The old two-inch tape format called um, known as quad. It was called quad because the um, videotape recorder had four heads on it. And on the replay for the archive um, master, I say one of the episodes of uh, middle episodes of Invisible Enemy had a clog lasting about five minutes, which uh, means that the picture goes a bit grainier and bit lower in resolution in horizontal stripes across the picture and for the dvd i sort of hit it hard with noise reduction in that area and tweaked it and sort of got away with it but at the time i i, I kept remember thinking to myself you know if we ever get a chance to do this again it would be nice to go back to the tape and see if we can get a, re a better replay before we did that we'd probably ch try and check an off-air uh, tape which which do exist in in, in private hands there were you know, three or four people uh, known to, uh, known to us who were recording off air onto early formats. Then, and and if we if we see that the 
that that fault is there was there on the transmission, then I think we can be certain that it's a fault burnt into the tape. And however many times we replay it, we'll still get the same results. So there'd be no point going to the mm-hmm. considerable expense. It would it would end up costing probably close to a thousand pounds to get that tape retransferred. Because of its age, it would have to be baked. It would have to be evaluated before being played because no one wants to put damaged tapes or, um, onto a onto increasingly rare machines where they, where the heads are just aren't made anymore so heads are in very short supply mm-hmm. so the tapes have to be very heavily evaluated so most of the expense actually goes into the making sure that playing back the tape isn't going to wreck a an extremely n- not so much expensive but extremely extremely rare and impossible to replace bit, you know bit of machinery so if we have to do if we have to do it that might be one that we go back to but we might you know it may be that uh, we'll just base it on the dvd master and probably do it again probably do it better now and that brings us back to season 22 because that's what we started with really Uh, i always i always tend to start with the dvd masters because that saves time and work Um, it's it's never fun redoing work they've done before just for the fun of it but i also uh, have a look at the source tape i started with for the dvd uh, because in most cases the film inserts can be made to look somewhat better by going back, you know, going back to square one on those. Not so much the videotape sections, but the film inserts. We can do more with them with this um, software tools we have now to squeeze that extra little bit of detail out of them. Something I wondered just a passing, I suppose, was when you're submitting a finished episode, in terms of a file size, how much does that, what is the actual size of a finished file, one episode? It's, it's, it's for a 25 minute episode, Give, give you know, give or take. It's, it's roughly about thirty-five gigabytes per episode, and that's uh, that's using a, a compression codec called ProRes High Quality, which is the pretty much the industry standard for everything up to and including HD. If um, for four K uh, files, um, there's another codec uh, that, that's used, which um, has a um, it's a neater codec, but it's slightly, um, but it, it, it's a more modern codec, uh, slightly more clever. So it will reduce the uh, reduce the file size more, but without impinging on the quality. But but yes, it, it's called ProRes HQ. An uncompressed episode of Doctor Who is about two hundred gigabytes. Wow. But the ProRes HQ codec, codec is, is generally so uh, is, is so good. You would probably have to copy the re-encode and re-encode and re-encode about 20 times before you saw any no- noticeable difference in, in it. So to all intents and purposes, it's, um, it's not quite lossless, but to, to most people's eyes, it is lossless. It's effectively lossless. And it makes the file sizes a little bit easy to cope with and also means that I only have to have a 200 terabyte hard drive system rather than a, a petabyte. <laughs> <laughs> this when you mentioned copying and copying and copying. Have you had many VHSs from the JNT archive to work with from for this release? No, virtually nothing. I mean, the, the, I don't know if we've talked about the JNT archive before. It's, it, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I, I've got all of the pretty much all of the tapes here and all of the ones that um, that have unique material on um, I've already transferred to digital beta cam which is a slightly more robust format going forward although even that's obsolete now but I mean not not as obsolete as VHSs 
But the thing about the JT archive is it wasn't really an archive in the sense that most of us would would think of. What happened when they um, when John was uh, eventually made redundant and the production office was closed? The BBC bosses said to uh, John and his partner Gary Downey, "Please clear the office. You know we don't want it. You know, clear the office." So Gary hired a truck. Well, not a truck, a you know a, a Luton van, like you would get if you were doing a small removal. And they they went to the uh, they went to the production office and they literally emptied out the production office, including the including the chairs, the filing cabinet, <laughs> the tables. It was absolutely, you know, um, and that's what they did. And they took it all away in script, photographs, and tapes. So so what they took away were, were tapes that were in the predominantly uh, tapes that were in the production office. But also over the years, John was very paranoid about sort of raw recording, studio recordings, early edits, um, sort of getting out. And they did have those in the production production office. So what they used to do is take them home and use them to time shift onto. So when Stephen Cranford, sort of, um, who inherited them uh, on Gary's death, uh, sort of went, went through them, quite often uh, you, you, um, there would be tapes um, labelled that looked very exciting. Um, the, 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 there was, one, for example, there was one tape which had that was originally a studio recording session for Attack of the Cybermen, which of course would have been fabulous for this release. And but what they would do is they would they would either just record nothing onto them, just put them in without a signal and just record them to wipe them, which was the case with this Attack of the Cybermen tape. So if, if you play the tape, you get literally two frames at the start of the tape of an empty set with no one in it, recognizably from Attack. And then the rest of the tape is wiped, it's blank. And the other thing they used to do is they used to, there's, there's an awful lot of early edits and studio recordings that are recorded over with Coronation Street. But one of the good things about John and Gary's lifestyle is they like to they like to drink, and that meant that they weren't necessarily completely on top of what they were doing a lot of the time, um, particularly technically. And that worked that worked to our favour because on Snake Dance we have the, about the last I think it's about the last three minutes of the episode, which was just completely edited off on the transmitted version. But, uh, but but there was an early edit of it which ran to about twenty seven minutes, and it had an, an entire scene after the transmitted ending, which did end up going on the DVD in the end. And the only reason we have that is it was one of the tapes that John and Gary recorded over uh, with Coronation Street or some similar programme. It was, it was, anyway, they recorded over it with a 25-minute programme. And in, you know, in, in, their, in their vodka haze, they obviously thought, well, we've recorded this 25-minute programme over the top, so that's fine. You know, that's, not, that's never going to get out. Uh, but they, they hadn't checked and because the original episode was around to 28 minutes or something, or 29. We, we were lucky to have the rest of it. But you know, if there, there might well have been other extended scenes in, in that tape of episode four of Snake Dance, but they'd recorded over it with, with something. And you know that's something people have to bear in mind, really, when they talk about the JNT archive. It was basically what they did was they, they, they took working copies of on, on VHS Home to, to use as free blanks to record Coronation Street and any other. It, it, it was. I'm not. I'm not just saying Coronation Street as a you know plucking out of the air. They were massive Coronation Street avid Coronation Street viewers, and they always, they always time shifted it to watch later. So most most of you know most of the uh, Doctor Who that that you know they they took home that would have been absolute gold for us now.
was recorded out with Coronation Street. <laughs> oh, God. Coronation Street exterminates they, Doctor they, Who again. They're like just some stuff. They're like just some stuff. You know? Yeah. Oh, dear. I, I just can't believe that. It's sort of Corey, which yeah. obviously it knocked her show off in the late 80s, and then it's doing it in the 90s as well with John and Gary. Oh, oh well, bless yeah. them. I mean, the other, the other thing that springs to mind from, from the J&G collection is the, um, uh, the recording of uh, the, the production office uh, tape of Robot. Because they, they they had you know um, a copy of every every existing story to be able to watch and refer to, but when I actually checked the tape of Robot, it was a three-hour studio recording of Ghostlight, wow, uh, which was a good surprise that we weren't expecting. And and if and, and if John had known it was there, he would have wiped it. But he, he just thought it was Robot. So that was a lucky strike. You win some, <laughs> you lose some. Absolutely, absolutely. So going with season 22, were there any particular things that you were aware of before you started that you really wanted to try and address and work on? There were a few things. I mean, I mean generally, it, it's try, uh, as, as before, it's trying to make things look as good as they possibly can on modern televisions. There were a few repairs which were um, I was happy with for DVD, but again, with, with bigger TV screens, it's hard to get away with things. And uh, uh, you know, one thing that was picked up in uh, in QC as well, down the line from me, uh, and sent back as, you know, can, you know, can you do any better with this? And my initial response was, oh, you're joking, was episode two of Time Lash. There's, a, there's about an eight, eight, is it eight minutes? But it's either six, six, or six, seven or eight minutes section in the middle, around um, centred around the 20 minute mark. Uh, where the tape was scratched and it was probably scratched probably scratched during the transmission because I, I, I checked it with two off-air VHS tapes that I had uh, of it and it was it was visible there on the transmission but had it been known about before the transmission they would have gone back and re-edited it so I th- and, and, and probably by the time it was noticed that the tape had been damaged the studio tapes had probably been wiped so there was no way of going back so I, I concealed the scratch as much as I could for the, for the DVD, but it, it was it was noted, you know, it was noticed. Um, so I went back and had another go. And if you if you really look hard for it, I think you can still probably see in one or two short places that there's something not quite right across the doctor's collar in some shots in the Borad's room. But for the most part, I think if you if you're only watching with a normal viewer's sensibility rather than an engineer's looking out for faults. Um, it's probably invisible now, so I'm quite pleased with that. That was that was tricky, and the, and the other thing which I'm pleased about, which was diffi- which was very difficult, um, was in episode two of Mark of the Rani. There were some problems with the film transfer on that episode, and at one point, I don't know whether it was a, a break in the film or anyway, something happened, and the picture wobbles and defocuses really quite badly for quite a few frames, probably about seven or eight frames, maybe more than that. And again, that's something that I repaired for the DVD and was happy enough with it at the time. But looking at it again now, I thought, oh, no, no, I, 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 can, I can still see there's something wrong there. So, you know, I want to see if I can do better with that. And it took, it took a long time, it took the best part of an afternoon to do, but I think I, think I got away with that now. And so it's a, it's a shot where the Doctor and Perry are going into is it the bathhouse or is it, it's a wooden shed type room. I can't remember where it is in the in the narrative of the story, but that was a that was a tricky one, uh, and I was I was pleased to be able to go back and revise that and sort that out. 
Yeah. Oh, it's lovely. I just love the attention mm. to detail that you have is as a fan you want it to be as good a job as possible and as a professional yeah. of course you want it to be as good a job as possible absolutely. Well, that's the, yeah that's the thing I, thinking back attack of the sidemen's another one where there's a lot of film and i didn't really i obviously when it was done for dvd because um, repairing sort of warps of the film around um splices in the film it's something that was it was it was possible to do then but it was very very difficult so uh, and, and if and if we tried to do it then, often we didn't do a fabulous job of it by modern standards, but the tools we have for that sort of repair are much better now. So it was nice on, on well, all of the um, episodes with film, but especially, I think, Attack of the Cybermen was one where they were, they were particularly shonky. It was nice to go back and stabilise the, the warpy, jumpy bits where the film splices were. And also tidy up some of the bits I haven't noticed before. In, inside the ice tombs, all of the smoke overlay. There's no smoke in the um, in the studio at all. It's, it's basically a loop of film overlaid um, at a at a very low low level, and of course this the film has a bit of dirt on it. So if it, actually when you're concentrating on, it, if you're looking at it specifically at the smoke overlay, you notice that about every three and a half seconds, or maybe every seven seconds, something like that. You can see the same, the, and it's it's very low density, which is why I hadn't, but I, I didn't get rid of it on the DVD. I probably just probably didn't even spot it, didn't even notice it. But looking at it now, I knew every every seven seconds or so, you get the same bit of uh, bit of dirt coming up on the on the smoke in the studio. So uh, so I've got rid of all that, all of that now. Oh, there you go. That's dedication. <laughs> That's what you need. In terms of working on footage for the extra content. Um, again, going back to original sources as best as possible from other shows of the time, and I'm deliberately mm. not mentioning that show. Yes. Is it, is it has it been as well preserved as the Doctor Who content? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it didn't, it didn't need a lot of cleaning up, but basically, I used the transfer that was done for the the Two Doctors original DVD, um, which is a per- perfectly good transfer. But it's it's just, um, I mean, I mean, really, it's. You know, um, I think you know. I, I think it's re- I think it's reasonable enough to mention the show. Actually, I think enough time has passed. You know, um, that obviously the um, the person, you know, the presenter, doesn't need to be seen. You know, had you know had he not had his history, you know, he there'd be no reason not to not to have that little bit of it. But yeah. in terms of Doctor Who, it is a fix with Sontarans. It's a little mini episode, and it starts with the episode with the start of the episode. And it finishes just before the uh, the person that we don't you know we, we don't want to think about and enters the shot. Pete McTie's sort of um, added a, um, you know, replaced him on screen with something else. I, I don't know what it's downstream down. It was all done downstream of me. But but yes, it's so so in terms of preserving uh, Gareth Roberts, you know, a bit, you know, day, day in the limelight and the the, the bit of uh, the Sixth Doctor with Tegan. You know, it's all there, and it looks as it looks decent. You know, it's uh, it, it's there, but uh, because you know, because you know, um, because of Savile, there's no need to punish. In fact, I think it would be a terrible thing to punish people who actually had nothing to do with him. And of course, lest we forget, really, that show was he was literally just the presenter who came pretty much came in on the day. Read his lines off auto cue, dish, you know, doled out the badges, and you know he 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 didn't have any involvement in 
any of the fixes. It was all Roger Audish, the producer, who you know who, who made it all work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, good riddance to bad rubbish, but we don't have to throw throw everything else out with the yeah. rubbish. Yeah, very true. Very true. Now, something I did mean to ask you last thing was, when you get the finished box set through, can you actually put it on and watch it and enjoy it? Uh, not yet. I'm often intrigued to see what the extras are and uh, what the, the documentaries are like, but um, I, I generally don't have the chance. The, the, uh, I've never had the opportunity yet to do it. I mean, sometimes I have to check things to make sure things are right. Although there are lots of other people before me now uh, who who do that, particularly Richard Bignall, Mark Ayres, are very strong at looking. They they get test discs and they go through them with a fine fine tooth comb, making sure that everything is right and, and and sometimes particularly with the sound for mark things can superficially appear to be okay so it slips through every layer of technical checking before that but mark you know can sometimes spot hang on you know is that channel have those channels been swapped over you know something like that that might not be automatically apparent and and occasionally things are you know, I think things are questioned, but generally at that stage, it's uh, there, there are checking stages before that where th- where things can be corrected. It's, it, it 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 tends to be really just for um, absolutes. You know, oh my God, how could you know how could we, how could we have missed that? They do um, they they do slip through. That's how the, um, the you know the spelling mistake of Andrew McCulloch's name slipped through on the season uh, season eighteen set initially. It had been checked by plenty of people, but you know. It's a sad fact of life that if, if you if you want to get one hundred percent error free, rather you know, rather than ninety nine point nine nine percent error free, you always need one more person. To... Yeah, yeah. It's, well, having worked in newspapers, I know what you mean because you can check everything, and then there's just one name spelling. There might be a Mac something, and it turns up as MC. So yes, I know exactly what you mean. Mm. It's, it's, it's easily done, and that's why I have people checking. But <laughs> if, if the people checking, if it slips through with them yeah. as well, and human nature you know it occasionally comes i think we've got i think we've got the errors down to uh, as close to zero as it's feasible yeah. for anything to be now you know yeah life's too short to worry about you know absolutely but that's been brilliant peter thank you so much again for your time and joining okay, us okay i hope podcast. i hope everyone enjoys it it's uh, it's an interesting season <laughs> it definitely is speak to you again yeah. soon cheers yeah look forward to it Thanks to Peter for all of that. I was hanging on every word and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So now let's have a chat with Richard Bignall, whose tireless work into the history of Doctor Who is incredible as he recovers old paperwork, finds lost scripts and a thousand and one more things. So my name is Richard Bignall and I look after the uh, PDF archive in the main on the Blu-ray collection sets, uh, curating all that, putting everything together and uh, sorting all those out as well as doing lots of research for uh, other people doing various features chris chapman and so on uh, richard latto sorting out uh, research for, for their particular documentaries as well fantastic well welcome back richard it's always a joy to have a wee chat with yourself absolutely lovely to be here Kim. it's rather exciting that we've pretty much now got the whole colin baker era and i would imagine given this was quite an interesting period in the show's history. You'll have come up with some really interesting paperwork for this. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating time. I well remember sitting there uh, and seeing that 
copy of the Sun newspaper that had the um, headline all about Doctor Who being cancelled, uh, which I think came out about around about the time of the two Doctors, something like that. So, um, yeah, so I remember the time very well personally. So it's uh, it's been a very interesting one to to go through. The BBC have kept a number of production files for this particular season. There's um, there's at least two two I think for for each story. So we've been able to drag out a lot of the paperwork and uh, also sort of go a bit further afield as well for for some of the items uh, that we've been able to put onto this particular release. Fantastic. So I'd assume that it's been your usual trips to the written archives, armed with a scanner and spending far too many hours in there. Far too many hours, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's uh, it's several days' work as it always is. Usually, book up a whole week at a time. So you're sitting there on your own, Billy No Mates, with your scanner, just endless whining of the scanner going on in the background as you just go flat out trying to get as much as you can out of the files. Not only the production files, you're also looking at other things as well to see whether or not there's any interesting material. So um, you know, you're looking at audience research reports and things like that. Uh, as well. Um, For this particular set, we've been able to, I was able to get in contact with um, production designer Alan Spaulding. Um, And Alan had retained a few of his production drawings uh, from when he did Revelation of the Daleks. So we've been able to include those. He very kindly allowed us to have those. We were in touch with Roger Bunce. A lot of people may remember Roger Bunce from uh, the cameraman, BBC cameraman, uh, who appeared in a number of the features and documentaries on the DVD range, uh, and indeed in the commentaries. Uh, lovely guy, Roger, um, who uh, sadly died. But his son, Robin, had been going through his stuff and found that his dad had kept various scripts, camera scripts for production blocks. So they're not individual episodes. They were done for, you know, for that entire production block. And uh, Robin sent those over to me, so I've been able to scan those and include some of those in this particular set. Time Lash, I think that's for. Um, so we've got one of his dad's uh, sets in there. Been able to include some draft scripts as well uh, in this particular set. So I actually purchased a draft script for episode two of uh, Mark and the Rani. Uh, there was a, an auction year or two ago, a couple of years ago, uh, where a lot of Pip and Jane Baker's archive was being sold off at auction, uh, which included some early draft scripts as well. So uh, I managed to get hold of one of those. So that's been put onto the set. One of the things we did have trouble with with season 22, uh, because we're going to be including Slipback as part of the set, was that there was pretty much no paperwork at all for Slipback. I think I had one document and that was about it. So that, that was the slip back archive. And we weren't able to get hold of the scripts because slip back, uh, there, there are no paper copies of the scripts at the BBC. They probably are on microfilm as part of light entertainment because it was done as this pirate radio four thing. They probably would have been registered under that. The trouble was during the lockdown period, we weren't able to access any of the microfilm at all. So we weren't able to get hold of that. And then at the very last minute, David Howe told, told me that he had 
four of the six scripts. So we were able to borrow those from him and scan them. And because of the slight delay we're getting in season 22 out, I was able to scan those and ask that they be included on the PDF archive. So what we had, um, the, the little breakdown that I prepare and uh, usually put on Twitter and a few forums showing what the um, total page count is for the for that particular season has actually increased by a couple of hundred pages because we've been able to include four of the scripts for Slipback. David had a few production documents as well, so we were able to put those on as well. So it's all sort of lovely, generous people like David and uh, uh, Chris Hill, who um, provides a lot of the merchandise stuff that we do and Radio Times. Yeah, it, it, it's all down to their sort of just general loveliness that we're able to include all these this extra material. So season 22 now stands. I've got my stats here by, by my side. Uh, season 22 PDF archive currently stands at 5,887 pages. So um, anyone who wants to sit through and read that lot is <laughs> more than welcome. I'm putting my finger up here because that's the sort of thing that I do when it's quiet late at night. <laughs> and I quite like to just go through and just have a wee look at all these things because they're gems and they're just incredible what you can find. Were there any particular bits of info that you turned up in this set that surprised you? Um Crumbs. I, I think it was quite nice in the um, Attack of the Cybermen material that there had been, I, I remember someone referring to the, this on one of the forums years ago, that there was a, a thought that when they were filming Attack of the Cybermen, doing the location filming, the original intention had been for the Cybermen to actually be dressed up in overalls with space helmets on, because they are, the atmosphere of their own planet was supposedly going to be poisonous. To them. And someone had said that, that that had actually taken place on location. Now, that, that was sort of, I've not really heard much about that before. So I, I did actually get in contact years ago with the costume designer, Anusha Naradzi, and asked her about it. And she confirmed that no, it didn't happen. But there is actually a, uh, a memo uh, as part of the production documents to show that that was the intention. There is a, a, a memo from, I think, the uh, production manager on attack uh, to uh, to the costume department. And that's outlining that they would have had these um, overalls and bubble helmets for the Cybermen. I, I think purely from practical reasons, they probably didn't do it, A, because they would have just steamed up immediately. They got, got on location. And B, whatever vision the Cybermen had inside their helmets would be reduced down even further if they wouldn't have stuck a huge plastic bubble on top of their heads. And I suppose if your career is about on top of sand dunes and in the sand pit, that's not really what you want to be doing for health and safety reasons. So we uh, we we got that. The uh, attack from the Cybermen production files also contain the recce photographs they did of the locations. Uh, before they did the filming, so uh, they're all in there as well. The Two Doctors has Tim Raynham, who played Val, the, uh, the, the Sontaran. There's some really nice letters that he sent to the production office uh, at the time, which Tim has given us permission to use, so they're in there. So Tim had spotted that Nicola Bryant, and I can't remember if they went to the same drama school or not, but he'd spotted that Nicola Bryant had pretty much come straight out of drama school and gotten the role in, in Doctor Who. 
So he was sort of begging along the same lines because he just left drama school. So he was begging for a job in quite a witty way. And uh, of course, he got the job and he refers to himself uh, in a few of the letters. He became known as Deirdre. So he's got a, um, he sent John Nathan Turner one of the uh, postcards, official BBC postcards of Nicola Bryant as Perry, uh, the, the, the landscape one. And, uh, and stuck his own head over the top of her. Um, and uh, yes, he's, he's officially referred to as Deirdre Raynham, begging for, begging for more work. So um, yeah, so, so there are some, uh, some nice little bits and pieces that are in, in the archive this time. Yeah, it's just a shame that there's, I believe there was, you mentioned two doctors there, that there's somebody who's got the film inserts in their own collection, but they've not been willing to share them, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. The film inserts were sold many years ago. By, um, by Mick Hall, who had them at the time, uh, sold them on eBay, and uh, they went off to America. Um, uh, this was at a time when eBay actually used to give you some information about who bought various things, so you yep. could actually see who, uh, some information about who had purchased it. And uh, so we knew that they'd gone off to America, and uh, we did a bit of digging, a bit of investigation. We managed to find who had bought them at the time. And yeah, we, we, we put out the feelers, we inquired, we sent emails, we sent proper mail letters, but never got any response back. So uh, we're, the guy may not have them anymore. You know, it has been, I don't know, 18 years or so since they were, since he originally bought them. So he may not have them anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it would have been nice to know. But for whatever reason, we didn't get a reply, so unfortunately we weren't able to put, put them on. But it would have been lovely if we if we could have done, because obviously the quality would have been that much better. There would have been some work to do on them, because being the film inserts, they don't have any of the video embellishments that would have been put on them. So, you know, things like the Sontaran ships in the sky and whatever, you wouldn't have seen those, you would have just in the blank, blank plate. But, you know, that could have been sorted out. But yeah, unfortunately... Couldn't get hold of them, but it wasn't for the want of trying. We we did sort of desperately try to pursue it, but uh, and spent several months doing so, but unfortunately didn't get any of it. Sadly, it was not to be. Is there much on the lost stories in this release? No. <laughs> there we go. I just want to present things up, doing that sort of like the bridge work between 22 and 23. That's short and simple. Uh, no, not really. There, there are... Vengeance on Varus contains uh, a document that Philip Martin sent with several story ideas that he had that weren't used. So, so you've got a short document there as part of it. I'm trying to think if there's, if there's anything else in there related to... I, I don't think so. I don't think there, there is anything related to um, unused stories, particularly in this one. Mm-hmm. And I take it that there'd be some bits from the cancellation you would come across as well. Surprisingly, no. Oh, really? There are what there are one or two documents that sort of vaguely refer to it. It's really surprising what's kept in the files and what isn't. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was sort of hoping that when we came to the time lash files, there might be something in there referencing Glenn McCoy's original story that he sent. Uh, which was the one that was supposed to have the Daleks in. But there was nothing there. 
uh, you know, and, and it's um, it's it's a bit disappointing sometimes. You sort of you you sort of go there really hoping about certain things that you might find, and actually find <laughs> find that they're not not there at all. So, sometimes you come across them. Sometimes there there are lovely little bits that um, will take you by surprise. But it's very often the things that you're you go there hoping might exist and then you find out they don't rather than the things that take you by surprise that you go oh that's nice but yeah in, in this case not really um there's, there's not really anything in there i think probably if there was anything but because these are primarily production files they're sort of focused on the actual stories themselves the production of the stories themselves i've got a feeling that if there were a, I know, and i'm sure there were a lot of um a lot of missives and memos and goodness knows what else flying about concerning the cancellation. Uh, they will, if they're kept anywhere, they will be elsewhere, probably in pe- pre- people's private files and documentations. That's fantastic, Richard. Really looking forward to it. And I've got to say once again, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you, Kenny. If you enjoyed hearing from Richard, don't forget you can still buy copies of Nothing at the End of the Lane, the magazine of Doctor Who, Restoration and Research, which he edits. Visit the website www.endofthelane.co.uk And now it's time to have a chat with our final guest this week, Chris Chapman. I've got to know Chris through our Big Finish connection. He's written some incredible Sixth Doctor stories, appropriately enough for this release. And if you haven't heard them, please do pop over to www.bigfinish.com and have a look. But we're not talking about Big Finish today. We're chatting about the documentaries that Chris makes for the collection series. And we also speak about his work on the animated episodes of The Ice Warriors. Hello, uh, my name's Chris Chapman and I am a documentary maker for the BBC Doctor Who range. Welcome to the Power of Three podcast, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Kenny. I must apologise in advance as my dog, who won't shut up in the kitchen, is underneath my table uh, eating a bone at the moment. So if you hear the gnashing of teeth upon uh, upon upon skeleton, then that's what that's what it is. It's my dog. It's Bruce. He's a nice dog, but apologies for that in advance. That's all right. It's lovely to actually be chatting to you about something that isn't big finished, because that's how we normally have a a little natter. That's right. For the magazine, we have a chat, don't we? Indeed. Yeah. yeah, I think, what was the last one? I think the Pimpernel one was the last that one. That would be it, yeah. Crazy. And there's another one. There's one coming out. Have they announced it? There is one coming out soon, soon-ish, and another one that I'm working on at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but neither one's been announced. There's no, still a Tom a- Baker one. But uh, which has been announced, the friendly invasions out at some point. Uh, but yeah, not about big finish today. Anything else, no. but not big finish today. Absolutely. So of course you've got a bit of a history. You've you were involved with the production of the Ice Warriors animated episodes many many moons ago. Yes. Yeah. So that must be like I was thinking about this today. That must be 2011 or so. Mm-hmm. I think that might have come out in 2012, maybe the release, and we. Basically, I used to work for a company in the northeast up in Newcastle called Dean Films, and all of the Doctor Who's I did for DVD were made through Dean Films. So it would always say Dean Films production on the end. And Dean lived in the same building uh, with an animation group called Curious, 
with a Q. And that's primarily a lovely, lovely pair of guys, uh, Neil Bushnell and Chris Chatterton, who are wonderful animators. Neil worked on like Space Jam in the early 90s when he was a young guy coming up, uh, which I always thought was quite cool. And they're kind of, certainly Neil is, is quite a Who fan as well. And I was producing documentaries for Dan Hall for the DVD range. And we'd done stuff like Who Peter. And at about the same time, we were doing things like living with Levine and looking for Peter and things like that. And I kind of knew that Dan was looking uh, for somebody off the back of the reign of terror. I think he wanted to have a couple of companies on the go making animations. And so uh, a, a whole group of different animating teams were asked to pitch, were asked to, to do an animation to a short scene of dialogue from Evil of the Daleks and a short scene of dialogue from uh, The Tenth Planet. And so we did those through Curious. Heard nothing for ages, for about a year or so. And then Dan said, actually, can you do the Ice Warriors for us? And uh, interestingly, we were commissioned at the time to do Ice Warriors and the Moon Base. And we actually paid some money to do to do the moon base, and uh, and then had a really amazing time doing Ice Warriors. But it took like a, a shitload longer than we thought. I think we underestimated it, and we had to turn around and say, "We just can't do moon base. Uh, we'd love to, but we just can't afford to do that." And actually, it turned out nicely because I think Planet Fifty Five did a lovely job on the moon base animation. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was Ice Warriors was lovely. A lot, a lot of detective work. Um, we wanted to take a very, I, I wanted it to be very screen accurate. I wanted to feel particularly because it's not a full animated story. You're slotting two episodes into like the middle of a six parter. So I didn't think it should look different suddenly. I didn't think the sets or the design should look different. Uh, I thought it should all, all fit in together. Uh, and, uh, and so, and so it's a very, you know, so we, we tried to base it very much on the telesnaps on what we could tell about the sets from the surviving episodes and to not do anything that the cameras couldn't have done. You know, we were basing it very much on the camera script. So even, even when you've got like a high angle shot in the control room looking down on the cast, it's because that's in the camera script. And that was gonna be like a mirror shot where they literally were gonna hang a mirror from the ceiling and shoot up into the mirror to see down onto the ground, which is the most wonderful budget-friendly alternative to having a crane or, you know, a cherry pick or whatever. Uh, so it was it was really fun yeah so no it was i i it's always a bit sad that we didn't do more you know we i would love to have done the moon base we were talking in the very early stages about uh, underwater menace and uh, and you know i i thought when we were doing it you know we'd love doing the documentaries but the documentaries are like a lovely bonus extra literally they're an extra and with the ice warriors with any of those animations that the other teams work on you kind of think well this is actually the doctor who bit you know, this is actually a part of the show. And so it kind of felt really legit at the time, you know, really like, oh, this is, this is proper. And, uh, you know, and those, those, the budgets on those were tiny. You know, the budget on Ice Warriors was a fraction, a tiny fraction of what they had on, say, Evil of the Daleks or Macro Terror and things like that. And, and, and you can see that, you know, you can see that the, the I actually think the, the likenesses and the performances and the close-ups are lovely. Uh, where, where the budget shows is where people have to move about, where people have to run or get knocked over the head and fall over and things like that. And, and that, you can't help that. That has to happen in a story like that. Uh, and that's where you see, I think, 
a cruel online forum might compare it to Captain Pugwash. I, I would say actually that there's a lot of life to those characters when you go back and watch it. And I and I I'm proud of the fact that I think it fits in really well amongst the live action episodes of that story. And it's lovely to see now it's on Britbox. You know, you it, it's kind of there properly as part of the series. So that that's really lovely. I'd still love it to come back. You know, if Ice Warriors 2 and 3 came back, I'd, I'd much rather that happened. Uh, but then it'd be amazing to do a side-by-side. -side. If Josh Snares did a kind of side-by-side -side comparison, I'd be fascinated to see that. Uh, that's just be, me being lazy and getting Josh to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, why do it when you get somebody else to do it for free? So that always works for me. With the Blu-ray range, you must be quite excited by the fact there's so many possibilities there for you to get in and do documentaries for stories that haven't been done before and indeed just general themed pieces that cover the, the whole season and I've thoroughly enjoyed them all so far and I think that the fact that you're a fan and your passion for it really does come across. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it, it's a really interesting one because it's a kind of combination, it's a balance of what you were saying that, uh, oh wow, this amazing freedom to, to do things and play and then uh, but then also you're fitting within other stuff you know you're kind of making sure that the range doesn't repeat itself a lot of these releases will have old dvd documentaries on and i think it's so important that we are you know we're filling gaps at times and then sometimes we're doing things that we wouldn't have even dreamed of doing on the dvd but we don't want to repeat it you know somebody said to me oh you should do a big roger delgado documentary and i said well you know, they, they did one and it went down really well. And people really, I wasn't involved in it, but I think people really enjoyed the one that got made in the DVD era. So I then think, let's not just do it for the sake of having, you know, you might say, let's celebrate them because we love them so much. And you think, well, there are so many people involved in Doctor Who who deserve their moment in the limelight and, and deserve uh, a film in this instance that hasn't been made before. So I think those possibilities are great. And the nice thing is, that every single series we come to prep for has a, is usually from a different decade or a different era of the show. And so your cast of characters, your cast of contributors is different. The feel of the show is different. And normally uh, that throws up a lot of potential avenues you could take about what kind of film you want to make. And, and you know, we, we're working on stuff from the 60s, 70s and 80s, of course. And, and, and that means uh, there's a lot of telly history to get your teeth into as well. So, I mean, I, we love doing it. And I think everybody who works on the range, you know, it's a job, but it's it's a job where we, we deliver a long way above what we probably should, <laughs> but, but we enjoy it. And for me, for me, it's like a professional hobby. For me, I, I make telly for, make documentaries for, for broadcasts for telly. That, that should be, you know, when I'm being sensible, that should be my day job. And the Doctor Who's kind of a, this lovely glue that holds my sanity together around that and gives me a, a real creative freedom to, to make things for people who seem to enjoy them. And that, that's lovely. Yeah. And just as we're talking tonight, uh, it's just a day after it was announced that Stuart Bevan had passed away. And that yes. documentary that you did with him and Katie is, is just still one of the real highlights of all the Doctor Who ranges, not just the Blu-ray collection, but also the DVDs. And that must be that must have been so much fun. And it's just so sad to think that we've lost him. Yeah, I was very sad to hear about Stuart. I, I know, I, I think I, I got the impression that his health might have been declining, but I didn't realise we, we were that close to the end. And uh, and I think, every, like a lot of people, I found out 
primarily through through Katie and 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 her announcing it. And Katie and Stuart have that beautiful connection, really. That you know, partly that they they were boyfriend girlfriend, but I think they had a lasting friendship beyond that. And making that film with them, we made Keeping Up with the Joneses for the series, season ten release, and. Uh, I think that was a really fond memory for all of us, really. It was a very challenging one. It was one of the hardest ones that we've made because the whole idea was, um, let's do a green, there's a green death making of already, but it's not on location. And maybe there's something really interesting to say about that location. The reason we'd never been to that location before was that most of it was gone, that the pit had been closed and there wasn't really anything, you know, anything of that site left. Uh, but I think Stuart and Katie really responded to the idea of doing something more about that about that community and about maybe what the pit had represented to them. And Stuart was so charming that weekend. You know, he was, uh, you know, both of them weathered the storm literally because we were being rained. You see in the film that we're being rained on and winded on the whole time. Uh, we had a replica Bessie that Dean Rose and Derek Handley had provided, and 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 I. Normally, when I use Bessie now, I'll often get somebody, I'll often get Dean to drive it. So in Devil's Weekend, uh, I, I had like a chauffeur figure. And on this one, I naively was like, no, it should just be Stuart and Katie and they can drive Bessie. And that's romantic. It's there that they can have a jaunt around South Wales. And, and Stuart was so game and Bessie was such a nightmare. <laughs> and, you know, I think Bessie on a good day getting that clutch to do anything is is nightmarish and that weekend she decided to break down bless her bless her you know and the engineers behind her but she broke down over and over again and a key memory for me is when we finally just to ruin the magic for you basically we we, we did all the stuff at the train station at the beginning first of all with Bessie that's all real and then she broke down immediately after that I think uh, she got stuck at the train station and we had to move her in a lorry and and so she didn't move at all for the rest of the day. And on the Sunday, because we were only there for a weekend on the Sunday, we thought, actually, if we manage to get her working, we'll do all of the driving stuff in one go. So not only the drive to Derry, but all the driving between locations in Derry. We you know we'll, we'll, we'll not, not fake it, but we'll just do those as their own bit in the knowledge of where they're going to fit with what we shot yesterday and what we're shooting today. And finally, Dean and Derek got Bessie working and Stuart managed to drive it all the way from where we were into Derry. I realised at that point there was no way of us attaching a sat-nav to the inside of Bessie. She's not really built for that kind of thing. And I was sitting in the back uh, with a camera and recording their sound. And I'm <laughs> so it was relying on me to, to be the sat-nav for Stuart and Katie and to say, left here, right at the court, you know, do this, do that. And I managed to send Stuart down the wrong way under a viaduct leading into this part of South Wales where a whole load of cars were coming straight up at us, you know, and he's in this little Edwardian roadster uh, and we're all screaming basically and having to to, to do a UE in the road and come back around. And, and he just took it all with very good grace. You know, he just seemed like he was a very... You know that 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 relaxed vibe that Professor Jones has in the show, I think was reflective of, of Stuart. I think he was a very chilled out, relaxed guy, and I think I can see why him and Katie would be a, a good pairing because she Katie's such an extrovert and she's so big and she's great, uh, but Stuart is just is the ying is the ying to that yang, and is a lot more relaxed and happy to 
to go along with it. And, uh, and he was a, a real joy that weekend. So I was very sad to hear of him going yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, may he rest in peace because he's so beloved. And just despite having only done one story, we all remember him well. I'd imagine that something that you do when you are doing the documentaries, are you recording extra bits just for future proofing? For just because obviously you'll be dealing with many actors who are in their older years and just perhaps getting wee extra anecdotes here and there, which was wonderful that they did that with power. They were able to do that for the documentary there with the likes of Bernard Archard and and others. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I probably <laughs> I probably should do this more than I do because uh, it's obviously a realism to what you're describing. I think the problem I often have is that if we're filming something like Keeping Up With The Joneses, we try and design the documentaries to be very bespoke and very much this person in this place talking about this thing. And if I then, in a Welsh Valley, get Katie to talk about, like, I don't know, uh, like, like in a Mind of Evil or something like that, it, it's for me, that's useless. For me, for me that, that's not going to go anywhere and is a waste of the time that we could be spending on, uh, on the documentary we're there to film. So I have been known, you know, sometimes if we're filming in somebody's house or something like that, and I realise... I filmed with a guy recently where I thought, oh, you also then worked on these two stories later, didn't you? And I can't be self-indulgent enough in that moment to say, let's do another hour of talking about the, but I will throw in a few extra questions and pick up a few things. Uh, the tricky thing there partly is when you ask somebody for an interview, you kind of have to say, I'd like to interview you for this thing. And here is a fee that reflects what we're doing for this thing. This is where it's going to end up. And if you then on the day start saying, and by the way, let's talk about something for another release. Like, we didn't talk about, we didn't agree this. And so I think that other people do better future proofing than I do. I think that I, I tend to just get very, very obsessed with what's in front of us and make it something that could only be for this thing. So, but I know that for instance, we will, I know that, that say Paul Venesis, and Matthew Sweet have shot some some of their interview series for contributors who are maybe a, you know a, a bit more senior in years. You know, you know they've kind of got some of those in the bank and so on. But you could go mad obsessing about banking things. You could go mad thinking, get all the old people, get them all on camera now, and then it will be somebody who. I mean, I mean, Stuart Bevan is in his early was in his seventies, and was not in any way on that list of people that uh, we should be worried about. I mean, Liz Sladen, Caroline John, you know, Ian, Ian Marta, Michael Craze, Mary Tam. We've got such a long history of people going when we don't expect them to, and you know, that being a tragedy, that I think you'd go a bit mad if you were constantly thinking about, oh God, you know, everybody's gonna die. <laughs> I think we're, what we're trying to do is to do everything in front of our faces as well as we can. That's certainly what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Let's talk about something a bit more happy and jolly. We're <laughs> talking about the season 22 Blu-ray in this week's episode. And wow, just having seen all the pre-publicity stuff and thinking, you've definitely had a ball with Colin and Nicola and Graham Harper on location and going around. And yeah. yeah. So what was the thinking behind this documentary? Yeah, so this is a film that we've made called Location, Location, Location. Uh, season 22, uh, which is literally, uh, you know, we talk, I, I talk about kind of kind of filling the gaps. And on this one, it was literally looking at the DVDs for season 22 and thinking, all right, every story's got a making of apart from the two doctors. And I know that Steve Broster's going to go off and do a two doctors documentary. So I won't worry about the two doctors. 
what am I left with? What could be interesting? And I just thought, actually, all those other making offs from this season, it's such a good season for interesting locations. You know, the show is at its it is at an extremely kind of full-blooded level of I think John Nathan Turner's ambition for what it could look like, for where it could go, not just going to Seville, but you know, the the urban stuff, the East Endersy stuff you have in London for Attack of the Cybermen, the stuff at uh, in Ironbridge in the Victorian town for Mark of the Rani, and that was such an extensive like two-week shoot, going to to uh, uh, Portsmouth for Revelation of the Daleks, uh, and I just thought actually. We, those locations don't feature on the DVDs and are great locations. And also Colin and Nicola really weren't in, as involved in those DVDs as you might want them to be. Sometimes they don't appear in those documentaries or they appear quite fleetingly. And I just thought, I love, I think I work with Colin and Nicola at Big Finish and I think they have a lovely interplay. And I think that relationship that you see in say Mysterious Planet when they're in the, in the forest in Ravelox at the beginning of that, that's kind of how they are, you know. So if you imagine them walking around Ravelox, we've got kind of that version of them basically, you know, wandering around these locations, getting to go back to Ironbridge and around the London spots for attack and down to Portsmouth for Revelation of the Daleks. And they get to they get to travel on all sorts, like kind of like they get to, to go on horse and carriage and farm buggies and London black cabs and uh, and it has lots of nice surprises in it, lots of things that they weren't. As you can see from the trailer, you know, that we got to take a TARDIS back to the side of the pond from Revelation and uh, and give Colin back his blue cloak, his his his, his blue morning uh, cloak from uh, from Revelation. So it was really, it was lovely. And, and their relationship, I think, in that film is really genuine and quite touching and... And I think from our point of view, it really feels quite grand and it looks lovely. It's like it's like a 50 minute doc, so it's quite meaty. And I think throws up things that, you know, we certainly found things that we haven't encountered before. You know, you reach out to people like the farm from Revelation where they shot the pond stuff and you suddenly realise, oh, they've got stories and they've got photos of the Daleks and sets that were kept in their barn overnight, you know, when Doctor Who came to film in 85. And, you know, I do think going on location like that, it does throw up new things that we may not have spotted before. So it was really fun. We shot it all in November and we're very lucky with the weather, had lovely winter sun on a lot of it. And it was, uh, and we don't really tend to have a plan B in terms of rain. So <laughs> we got away with it. It was very lucky, yeah. very fortunate. Yep. And imagine that, like myself, when it comes to Vortex, everything I do is hideously overlined. And I noticed that, you regularly post tweets saying, ah, yes, we've got whatever it is, three hours worth, and I need to get this down to 50 minutes. And sometimes it can be very, very difficult, can't it? Just choosing what to keep and what to let go. It's kind of my favourite bit, really. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's nice, you know, when we've been out on location in the rain, it's nice to come and sit uh, at a desk and to just focus on what you've got. And when you feel like you've got it and it's there, you just need to kind of to trim it to its perfect form, hopefully. Uh, that's a lovely feeling. And I, I just think that I've seen a lot of early cuts of our films when they're longer. And I know Doctor Who fans like, you know, think it have this kind of feeling of, of more being more. But in this case, pace and flow are so important. And, and also not overstretching your material, not letting an interview go on for so long that you run out of illustrations of that or uh, you run out of ways to connect them to the location that they're in. 
I, I genuinely think that the pace is really important and focus and not just saying, let's talk about everything, but let's talk about the things that relate to why we are here. And, uh, and so I, I never feel any guilt <laughs> about chopping these things. And, and, and most of our films will have a, a, a much longer form, but it's not as good. And so I, I like I like to get rid. And sometimes if there's an actual scene that we realise just doesn't work in the cut, we'll sometimes have a bonus piece of material uh, that that we put out there. Uh, I know we did that on Cookbook. We we massively over delivered on the number of recipes we thought they needed to do. And so we thought, well, let's not ditch these. Let's just do some bonus recipes. And and then uh, you know, so we try and do that. But mostly it's just slimming things down to keep it focused is is the main thing. Yep. And one final question. What has been your favourite thing to date? I would guess you might go for the award-winning Doctor Who cookbook, but am I right? Well, I mean, I, I love I love lots of them. Uh, I'm very proud of lots of them. There's some that I think are rubbish, <laughs> and, and I could probably give you a list of a dozen or so that are just that stink. Uh, but mostly, uh, and certainly, you know, the more generally the more recent ones, you know, the Blu-ray ones, I'm very proud of. I think we used to sacrifice them Back in the day, I, I when it was the DVD range and the budgets were a bit tighter, I realised one way of doing it, I th I'm sure John Nathan Turner would be proud of this, was that if I took three commissions for three documentaries and shared the budgets between them, it would mean that I could sh take two of them and make them purely studio uh, affairs. So I'd shoot them all in the same day in a super long day of studio green screen filming. And that would free up the budget for the third film to be an extravaganza, to be an on-location, all guns blasting. And, and from that, you get things like Haydick versus Havoc and Living with Levine and Looking for PT. Now, that's where suddenly we could go, well, let's shoot for a couple of days, let's shoot for a few days. But so it certainly meant there were some stinkers, you know, the, the, I think the worst one we've ever... Oh, the, I, I remember doing uh, the Moonbase one. We did one called Lunar Landing for the Moonbase, which has still got some interesting bits in it, but it's such a low energy kind of nothing of a 20 minutes of a dock. And, and it was purely because we just ran out of steam. I think we were just working on lots of things. Cookbook, I loved doing partly, I think, because of that whole experience of, you know, the way it was received and, and the RTS award and being able to share that with uh, with the whole cast and crew of that, you know, being on a Zoom call. It's one of the weird advantages of COVID that if normally we would have all been in in the in the Bristol Old Vic uh, for that award ceremony and those tickets were expensive and we couldn't have all gone, you know. And, and also we wouldn't have said to Colin Baker, come along for this, Colin, because we would also had to say, we're probably going to lose. You know, there's only a one in four chance that we're going to win, Colin. So it's up to you. Do you want to come and sit and, and you know, Probably not. And probably a lot of people wouldn't want to make that journey if they thought, well, I'm probably going to lose. And because it was Zoom, it meant we could all share it and we could have about 15 people, Colin and Nicola and India Fisher and Janet and Sarah Sutton and all, all these people, uh, Fraser Hines, all on a Zoom call cheering was, you know, probably my favourite moment as a human being from the whole lot. Favourite film? Ah. Uh... The, uh, of the making of my favorite is the the fury from the deep one the cruel sea that we shot down at the red sand sea forts just because that felt like a very ambitious piece of filming to pull off which we almost didn't pull off a number of times and that felt really good i really like the biopics that we've done uh the liz sladen and john nathan turner films i'm really happy with i really like a weekend with waterhouse because it feels very 
natural and I think you see a real side to Matthew. Yeah, I like a lot of them, really. I mean, I'm just very happy in my job. I'm very happy making them. And there's only really been a few in the last couple of years that I've thought, oh, that's all right. You know, I've mostly thought I'm really proud to be putting this out there and I hope people enjoy it. If they don't, that's absolutely fine. But I, I, I don't feel like I've, I've under-delivered on those. I feel like it's been a really, we've had a really fun time. And I think, I hope you can see that in the film that we had a fun time. Most definitely can. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got with Location, 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 season 22. So Chris, thank you so much for chatting with The Power of Three. It's been an absolute honour. No problem, Kenny. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you for having me. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Massive thanks to all our guests this week and what's been a tantalising tease for Monday's Blu-ray. I can't wait. A top-notch birthday present awaits. If a day late. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod with the number three and you'll get updates on when our next episodes are due and the likes. I'm off on holiday for a couple of weeks to Lanzarote. Oh yes, I'm off to Planet of Fireland. And of course, a few Peter Capaldi episodes as well. And we've got a treat lined up for you on my return as I've got a memorable guest from TV Doctor Who on for a chat. Who is it? It's a shame I can't tell you yet, but you'll find out soon. And of course, keeping with our Powder 3 tradition, we like a song to play us out. And this week, I've gone for a song that I saw last Friday on a repeated episode of Top of the Pops from 1993 on BBC4. And since this story features Daleks and Chris has made a documentary on Revelation of the Daleks, I think we should really feature Snap and Exterminate. Exterminate? Maybe not. Bye-bye.
Exterminate. Exterminate. 